0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV
1: podcasts
0: by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Hello, I'm Matt Ryan, As you know, we're UCSB Polythea Director and host of Script to Screen. Uh, we're very pleased tonight to be able to go to the moon with First Man. Uh, I want to thank Universal Studios, the ones that really made this possible today. Our guest, though, is an award-winning screenwriter having written scripts for both film and TV, some of his uh, film and TV shows, Fifth Estate, West Wing, Law & Order SVU, Fringe, The Post. He also did an event with us uh, just a few years ago for his award-winning screenplay, Spotlight, just on this Polytheater stage. So please welcome back Josh Singer um, to Script the Screen. All right, so we're going to start with the tough question first. What were the challenges of uh, shooting the moon scenes on the original set they shot in 1969? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, one of the great things about those, uh,
0: those moon scenes is that uh, Damien was... You know, had looked at a lot of. Damien watched, I think, every movie that had ever been made about going to space, including all the documentary footage, which was a basis for a lot of this in some ways. Um, but uh, he thought that a lot of the representations of the moon weren't terrific because they—you could clearly tell they'd been shot in a soundstage—and he mm. wanted it to feel real. Uh, and so, obviously, he made some really cool choices in terms of moving from sixteen to IMAX you know going from handheld and up close to you know more wides and steady cam but um, uh, you know the big choice he made is I'm going to shoot in a quarry so we literally found a quarry in Atlanta and and our production designer went out there Nathan went and made it look like the that part of the moon uh, and so it would feel you know like you're outdoors, you know, like you clearly are on the surface of the moon. Um, I guess a different kind of outdoors, there's no atmosphere, but you you understand what I'm saying. Uh, And so, uh, which was all well and good uh, until it just so happened to be the coldest winter in the history of Atlanta. Ah. (laughs) Uh, And not only the coldest winter, but the snowiest winter in the history of Atlanta. And in fact, it snowed on the moon. Uh, And in fact... We had to shut down for like a day and a half because of snow and ice on the moon. So, uh, so it was, it, and look, it looks incredible, but it was a little brutal <laughs>
1: to get there. <laughs> well, let's go back to the way back beginning. I mean, you're doing one of those famous events in human history. Everybody knows you know, how it's going to end. Uh, so before sitting down and writing the script, what was the conversation with you and Damien to decide what kind of narrative are you going to tell? Because you could have went in a million different directions. Yeah, Damien, from the very beginning, uh, was
0: focused uh, on the cost uh, and how hard it was and the fact that uh, it was a, a heck of a lot more challenging than really has been depicted. You know, uh, you know, a lot of the depictions of the space race are triumphal in nature, uh, and they're great. Uh, it's just he wanted to get underneath that and show the real sacrifice of these guys and how brutal it was, um, because that's what he had gotten from reading Jim Hansen's book. Um, and uh, and so when I read the book, I, I felt similarly. I, I mean, I couldn't believe... I mean, you guys have all just seen, you know, all that stuff actually happened to Neil. And, and, and it's sort of... I mean, the loss of the daughter is horrible enough. And, and the fact that nobody knew about it, because that's the kind of guy Neil was, like, he really didn't tell his colleagues about it. You know, that was, that was pretty uh, powerful for us. But then... You know when I read that, you know Elliot C. Who and and it, it's it's hard to really establish how how close they were. I mean, you know when you're backup on a on a crew, you do everything the prime crew does. So when they were backup on five, they spent six months intensively training. You know mostly with each other because they're sitting in those cockpits together, right? And moreover, they were both you know more on the thinker rather than doer side. You know uh, and, and so. They're really peas of a pod, you know, and somewhat different than a lot of the other guys in, in the astronaut corps. And so they were very, very close. And for Elliot to, to die just two weeks before Neil's about to go up in Gemini 8, right? Mm-hmm. And, then, and then he's got to deal with that. Then he goes up, then he almost dies, right? And then less than a year later, his next-door neighbor, who he's also quite close with, dies. Like, it's just it's staggering, mm-hmm. right? And the fact that he's got to then just keep going and put one foot in front of the other... Right, and think about Janet, right? Who, you know, and Janet and Pat were super close. And, you know, Rick Armstrong, you know, when we asked him about Pat, you know, he said, well, after Ed died, she just really wasn't there. Yeah. Right, which was, you know, meaning like she would be just out of it or out, up in her room or just not present in the same way. And this is someone who was bubbly and vivacious. And so, like, you know, the, 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 the things that these guys had to, had to live through you know, th- these men and women had to go through, uh, it just was, it, it was staggering to us. And, and showing that, that side of, of these missions felt like, it, oddly for me, I found it even more inspiring. You know, how, how hard it is, you know, it, it makes you realize, okay, if we're going to tackle these really terrible challenges we face today as, as, a, as a country and as a, as a, as a world. If we're going to take on climate change, we're going to have to take it on. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard, right? And just like, you know, if you're going to try to get to the moon, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard.
1: So what, what kind of, uh, I mean, the characters are one thing, but you're telling a story that involves space flight and a lot of technical and scientific details. Uh, who did you, how did you consult, and who did you consult with to get, you know, the extensive research needed to get that all accurate and proper?
0: You know, Jim Hansen, who wrote uh, the, you know, Neil's biography, uh, was a great starting place. Uh, and in fact, his book is very, very te- technical. It's 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 a little dense. It, it's I mean, it's a wonderful academic treatise. It is not the easiest read in the world because of the. Uh, because it is so technical, because he wanted to get that side right, because that was important to Neil, um, and so, uh, you know, that was a great starting point, uh, and I had to read it like 17 times before I actually <laughs> could begin to understand, uh, but even then, you know, there were often times where I would push Jim and have questions, and, you know, they'd either be beyond what, they generally wouldn't be beyond what he did, but, you know, he'd done this research 15 years ago, right, so, uh, there were times when he had the answer, and then there were times that he would say, "Okay, go talk to Joe Engel, who's the last living X-15 pilot." And Joe winds up being an invaluable resource who winds up coming to set and teaching us how to fly an X-15. Or go talk to Frank Hughes, who is the who retired as head of astronaut training and started in 1966 and literally trained the Apollo one astronauts the week before mm-hmm. you know the accident, and you know and, and knows everything there is to know about Gemini and Apollo and Lem. You know, or if you want to do LLTV, you know, go talk to Christian Gelzer, who's a former student of mine who knows everything there is to know about the LLTV and the LLRV. So we had a number of technical helpers, and then we reached out to folks like Mike Collins and Buzz Aldrin and uh, Dave Scott. And, you know, I do this thing with my scripts where I like to send them out, you know, to get eyes on them. To the experts, because I want to know ahead of time, like what kind of shape I'm in. So I got beat up, but good pretty early on. Like (laughs) I had made some pretty bad. I mean, it's I mean it's hard stuff. I mean, this technical stuff is 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 darn near impossible. uh, You know, for a layman uh, and a layperson, and and. uh, You know, it's funny because some of it, like the Apollo stuff, there's so much online that it's overwhelming and it takes you forever to be able to find out, okay, here's what I'm looking for. And then those resources open up for you and they're wonderful, like the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal and the Apollo Lunar Flight Journal. Gemini, on the other hand, you know, there's a very limited transcript, which is wrong in places because they were more focused on what had just happened in Gemini 8 as opposed to making the transcript right. So there were any number of times where Dave was like, well, I didn't say that. That was Neil. And I was like, Okay, <laughs> right? Transcripts as you said it, but okay if you, you know. So, and then we'd, we'd go back and verify. And Mark and Rick, Neil's sons, were actually very helpful with this. And they'd reach out to other people they knew. You know, okay, yeah, yeah Dave's right. He said this. That, that doesn't sound like my dad. That sounds like Dave. But, and then there was stuff that just didn't exist. Like all the stuff in Mission Control for Gemini, I had to, I had to come up with that on my own. Because there is no, there is flight director loop. Uh, for Apollo. So all the stuff in mission control and Apollo is there, but for Gemini, it's not there. So I literally had to, Dave Scott put me in touch with Jerry Griffin, who's one of the flight controllers uh, you know, in mission control during Gemini 8. And I had to say to Jerry, okay, so who's, who are the guys on the desks who are talking? Mm. And walk me through what each of these guys is saying at the various moments we're talking. Because Damien, uh, genius slash maniac that he is, <laughs> decided that he wanted to shoot Mission Control documentary style, meaning he wanted to have three cameras going at once, oh. and every one of those Mission Control sequences, he wasn't going to be sure where the camera was going to be, so I had to have language for everyone in the room. Um, and it couldn't just be stuff we put in a post, I had to have it done ahead of time. So that meant I had to write 40 pages of additional dialogue in Mission Control, well,
1: which, no, which is really neither.
0: painful when you think about how much of that wound up on screen, which is like that. <laughs>
1: But you you were able to run by the people. This is kind of what would have happened. I Literally, I
0: had Jerry say, you know, what do each of these eight guys say in each of these five moments? And he'd rough out something for me. And then I'd type up a version of that. And then I'd send him those 40 pages of additional dialogue. And then he'd give me notes, and then I'd send them to him again, and then he'd give me notes, and then finally we had something that was close, and then we'd rehearse it with, we had all these extras come in. And they were also flight controllers or people who knew, you know, there was a fella, this guy Rick Houston, who wrote a whole book on mission control, who was there, and kept saying, well, I don't think this is right. And so I'd call up Jerry, and I'd say, Rick doesn't think this is right. And Jerry's like, no, it's right because of this, that, and that, and I was there. I was like, well, okay. Rick, he was there, sorry. You know,
1: so. <laughs> All right, so we'll talk some specific scenes later, but when writing the script, did you struggle with finding the balance between good narrative and historical accuracy? Mm. Where they actually butt heads sometimes.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's um, you know, I think it's funny because the, the, the challenge, I mean, I could go on and on about this. In fact, I've written a book about it, but, but uh, <laughs> we'll get to that later. But, you know, the challenge is really Neil, right? I think in some ways, I mean, look, there's a huge technical challenge, right? And that is, I mean, look, the Apollo mission was eight days, so I'm going to do it in 15 minutes, So, right? So all of this, just by figuring out what you're cutting out. And similarly, Gemini 8 was eight hours, right? And so, you know, and how am I going to make docking and rendezvous, how am I going to make that clear to an audience while still trying to be faithful and only use actual comms or comms that I'm pretty sure, right, from Jerry Griffin, you know? Um, but Neil's the real hard one because Neil is this very tightly packaged, you know. Uh, I mean, Jim describes him as emotionally tightly packaged, right? And it's very clear that, like, I mean, you know, Janet would say no, no was a big argument from Neil, right? And Rick would say oftentimes you'd ask him a question and he just wouldn't answer, right? He just was. And, and again, what the, the other thing that was challenging as well is. He loosened up a lot in later years. When Janet left, Janet left him about twenty years after the end of our movie, and she left him. When she left him, she said it's because I couldn't take the personality anymore. Um, And and Rick and Mark have said it was sort of like a wake up call, right? And because he was he. He tried to woo her back like he was not happy about this at all. And then eventually, after about a year, met another woman, Carol, who wound up, who's a wonderful woman who he mar- married. And she brought him out of a shell a bit, right? And, and I shouldn't say brought him out of shell. That's not quite accurate. But I think she loosened him up a little bit. Uh, and so uh, he became, you know, warmer. And I think there was always a guy who, if you went to him, he would laugh and had stories and was and had a great wit, which we have in our movie. But I think there was also this very serious, very tightly packaged guy, like most of these guys were, who would take his feelings and just put them like that. And that is very hard to traumatize, (laughs) right? When you're trying to get him. And a great example, you know, was you know. So this moment when when the Apollo one. Tragedy happens, which is devastating to all the astronauts because it's a huge setback in the program, and it's specifically devastating Neil because, you know, he and Ed were, were, were tight. I mean, one thing we shot, which doesn't make the movie, is there was a house fire that burned down the Armstrongs' house, which, as you can imagine, you know, it was just we, we thought the audience would be sticking themselves in needles at that point. <laughs> but um, but uh, uh, you know, so. And in the, in, and Ed White was hopped the fence and literally was spraying down the house and then they wound mm-hmm. up staying at the White's for a couple days, right? They were very close to the White's. So for Neil to get that news, it's just about the worst thing you can imagine. And for us, that was always, you know, this is the moment that he goes full on dark. It's the Corleone moment, right? Yeah. He goes dark, right? And so Damien and I had originally conceived of this, you know, albeit it was a little bit of a Goodfellas ripoff, but this idea of like, you know, he gets the call and he has this moment processing, and then he just starts slamming the phone on the receiver and it. and in an outburst you haven't seen anything like it. And his hand gets bloody, and the receiver breaks in a thousand bits. And it was this huge, and you know, looked great on the page, like it was a full page of like action lines. And like Damon's like, love it, and I was like, oh, it's great. And we send it to Jim Hanson. Jim Hansen was like, no way. Not in a million years would Neil ever do this. And he got very heated And You know, I didn't even bother sending that draft to Rick and Mark, right? Like, because I knew it was just not going to fly. So then I'm stuck with, okay, how do I stay true to Neil and also try to be true to this emotion and, and let the audience in just a little bit? And so... You know, and fortunately, we knew we'd have Ryan, so, you know, he can do that thing where he goes, literally goes dead in the eyes, which to me is, you know... I mean, it's amazing, right? You're like, how did he just do that? It's the same face, and yet, like, oh, my God, right? And, And... But then, you know, I came up with, okay, what if you just hear this little pop? And then he looks down, and you realize he's been squeezing this glass so tightly that he's broken it, right? And it's sort of hopefully helps convey a little bit of what's going on inside even though you're not going to see him go. And so, look, it it winds up and again without a wonderful actor like Ryan who is so good in the small, right? It's it, you know, it would be very challenging, but I think Ryan manages to you know, bring you along emotionally right even though you know you've got
1: this very tightly packaged guy what uh, yeah the glass thing really affected me but speaking we'll drop a little head and then we'll go back a little but the we was on the 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 apollo what did you what was the decision about deciding what the show and what the show about the accident you know
0: oh that's interesting uh you know i mean we went back and forth on that a little bit um in terms of uh, about Apollo 1. I mean, we went, went back and forth a little bit about how exactly to do that and had a couple different versions, but ultimately, like, you know, I, we, were, we, we, we pretty quickly moved to this idea of, like, we want to cut away pretty quickly. Like, we want to we want, to, we want it to be, and, and a lot of that is pretty much real time. What's a, what's a little, you know, it's, it's, it's horrible and yet was very valuable for us is the tape of that incident is online. If you go home and you Google Apollo 1 fire, right, audio, it'll pop up. It's it's a YouTube thing, and it literally has, you know, like, it's like, I want to say it's a, it's a good, like, 30 minutes, from 30 minutes before the fire. And you can literally hear the comms. And so we were pretty faithful there in terms of those comms. And it happens very fast. Like, those guys are, are gone in, like, 16 seconds. It's, like, super... Because all the oxygen... Because it's an entirely oxygen cab, cabin, and the oxygen is all gone from that room in, in like, you know, like, in, in, in an instant. And so they asphyxiate, actually. Mm. They're not killed by the fire. They all asphyxiate. And so... Um, and, and so we wanted it to be, like, you're waiting, and you're waiting, and then suddenly this thing happens, and it's fat, and before you know it, you're out. Right. And, but that shot, which Damien did, that was, ne- I mean, it was never quite like that in my script, right? That shot, which to me is brilliant, is just a, you know, with the, with the, I mean, that's just, that's, that's Giselle genius right there. Just, you know, that's just, you're like, okay, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's the great thing about, the, the best thing about my job is getting to work with people like Damien, right? Because, like, you know, Damien takes what's on the page and just, like, You just can't believe what he's done. Like, he from the very beginning was like, okay, we're gonna be, you know, I want the X 15, I wanna be in the cockpit the whole time for that opening sequence. I'm like, how are you gonna do that? (laughs) How is that gonna be entertaining? He's like, just try, we're gonna be inside the cockpit and just try to write it like exactly the way Neil would have felt it. And, you know, so that's one of the reasons, because it's a seven page scene, because I'm just stuck in the cockpit the whole time. So, how am I gonna make that exciting? So, you know, I talked to Joe Engel and I tried to figure out exactly what he's doing and what it looks like and whatever. And then like, and I have something on the page like, maybe this'll work. And then you look at what Damien shoots and you're like, oh my God. I, I mean, I'm, I, as an opening of a film, I mean, I'd throw that up there with just about
1: anything. You oh, know? That's right. But speaking of opening, you, uh, you re, we'll, we'll talk about history versus fact. You flip Karen's death a little. Karen died. Yeah, so. And, uh, yeah, so what would, why the dramatic choice of having Karen die after the X-15, you know, flight you said before?
0: So, uh, so that actual X-15 flight This is for the real uh, space nerds like me out there. Uh, That that actual X fifteen flight happened in April, uh, and it was a pretty famous fight among aviation experts and space nerds, um, because uh, which I wasn't before I started on this journey four years ago. Uh, I now have my official like space nerd wings. But uh, but no, that flight is super cool because he literally he he gets distracted and he literally. Balloon, starts ballooning. Mm. And it's like he's bouncing off the atmosphere. And the problem is it sends him all the way downrange. And the X-15 actually, it's, it's a dead stick landing. You don't mm. have any engine. You're just gliding that thing mm. down. Mm. And it's a three-to-one lift drag ratio, so it's not really gliding. It's like trying to steer a brick on its way down to the surface, right? And so he's just, he wants up, you know, 20 miles downrange and has to get back to base mm. gliding this brick, right? So it's, you know, it, it's, it, it's an incredible... Moment, and it's one of three incidents uh, that, that three screw ups, uh, aviation screw ups on Neil's part, that happened right next to each other in, you know, right in the months just after. It was like three screw ups in a month, which is what we say, uh, right after uh, uh, Karen died. Mm. Uh, and, and as a result, and there's all sorts of conjecture in Jim's book, a lot of people thought it was related to Karen's death. Right, Um, and in fact, there is there is substantial conjecture that Paul Bickel was really on the verge of grounding him, uh, and moreover that you know this this you know Paul Bickel actually didn't recommend him for Gemini for the Gemini program because of these incidents. Right, that that is not conjecture; that's fact. Right, so there's clearly a link between you know these incidents and and Karen's death, right, in the minds of many. And so the problem was, we wanted, I wanted to show this flight in April. He had a similar X-15 flight in December, where he didn't screw up. you know. But this is the flight we were interested in. She died in January. But yeah. also, we wanted people to meet Karen, because right. we wanted to see that actual human and that... I mean, it's, it's the most tragic thing I, I personally can mar- uh, imagine as a parent of a two-and-a-half-year-old who I love to death, like... You know, so we wanted to see that interaction, feel that presence, and see the loss. Yeah. So we, we flipped time. And to me, in some ways, like, that's the, I mean, there are, there are three sins, right, in, in, in historical fiction. One is the sin of time, one is the sin, sin of place, and then one is the sin of manner, right? And to me, the sin of time, in some ways, is the least egregious, right? Yeah. If the spirit of it is still the same, right? And the spirit of it was, he's screwing up in part because he's emotionally distracted.
1: And right? she was dying in their story. She, they knew she was dying you know, uh, you know, with the tumor. Anyway. Yeah, I mean,
0: and the cobalt radiation is true. She had two rounds and then it was too much for her, and then shortly thereafter, you know, I mean, she was at home and then just didn't, I mean, she just made it through Christmas. So, so it, was, it was one of these things where, you know, to me that shift was not one that was uh, was against the fabric of the narrative. Well, it's against the spirit. It's it's not the letter of the law, but to me, it's the spirit of the law. It's not the letter of the history, but it's the spirit of the history.
1: Yeah, it was interesting, uh, and I highly recommend this book. Uh, to Plug, First Man, this is a great book. Josh uh, wrote. I, it. I paid him to plug this. No, so it's just that actually how it talks. Obviously, the script is all there, but all the notes, you know, about how to do oh, come it. Come
0: on, we'll give him the full cell here. Do come on, the full cell. Let's go. For no, it. so 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 no no but that. The reason I wrote this book, right? <laughs> so the, 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 the book has the script. That I've confirmed, conformed the script to more or less meet the movie. But the, the, the reason I wrote the book was not just for the pretty pictures. But Jim Hansen, who wrote the biography, and I talk about every scene. And we, we add historical context to all the you know, good homework we did that, of course, doesn't make the movie, um, but gives you some more detail if you're interested in Neil Armstrong or space. Um, uh, uh, but it also talks about where we take license and why. Because to me, I sort of feel like all the time you get, you know, there are always the articles every year, oh, this historical piece is not true, or this historical piece is really true, or how, historical, how true should journalists write these pieces about... Mm-hmm what our responsibilities are as screenwriters, but screenwriters don't really talk about it with each other. Because screenwriters, you know, we go off into our holes. We don't really talk. You know? <laughs> and and to me, like, I feel like we should talk about this. Like we have a response. I feel a tremendous responsibility when I write movies like this. You know, you know, one, two The people I'm writing about, Neil, right? To, to, generally I I work with the families, whether it's Don Graham, you know, on on the Post talking about his mom, or Rick and Mark talking about Neil, or the the, the gang of reporters on Spotlight. So I feel tremendous responsibility to them, right? But then there's also this responsibility to the public. Because, God willing, your movie is going to get into lots of theaters and lots of people are going to see it. And this may be the only thing they know about Neil Armstrong. So, don't you have some responsibility to try to actually be in the ballpark? Mm-hmm. Right? And so, and so, but how do you think about those things? How do you think about when to take license and when not to take license? And what's the line? And it's a tough line, especially because, you know, you number one want to tell a good story. You don't tell a good story, then nobody shows up, right? And so, um, to me, it feels like a conversation. That screenwriters should have, you know, and and and, and, a, and a set of, you know, there should be some ethics, you know, a set of a set of standards.
1: Speaking of the screenwriting, because you're generous, we have your script scene excerpts for the audience today. Uh, there was a line, it just you said uh, in the script, hold for an awful beat when Karen was in the uh, radiation, yeah, getting tested. So lines like that, how does that help the right the actor, because we'll talk about Ryan Gosling, what he brought to it, kind of identify what the character's getting to? Because that's just a simple line, but to me kind of sums up Neil Armstrong, like hold from what he's going through.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, it's funny because I'm generally trying to... Uh, it's funny because it's something I don't do very well. I, I tend to put everything in the kitchen sink into my screenplays. Meaning like I talk about what the actors are feeling and, and, and which is really, you, you shouldn't, because often oftentimes actors will like, have somebody like go cross all that stuff out. Like I don't want to know what, I want to figure it out myself, right? Um, you know, to me the, the screenplay is a blueprint, right? Mm-hmm. So like you'll see, you know, to reference the book again, uh, <laughs> but not in a salesman type way, <laughs> but you'll see like, like, I, I write a lot, this is all, these are all, there's no words in here, there's no dialogue here, but there's a lot of action, right? And I tend to write all that action out, and it's mostly so that everybody can be on the same page from, you know, I mean look, the first thing the screenplay is is a sales tool of to the studio. This is gonna be a great movie, you're gonna make lots of money, don't worry about it, right? And so like, you're trying to sell them on the page what this movie is going to be, right? So that, that that's number one. And so some of that is just, so in case they can't intuit, you're spelling it out for them a little bit, mm. right? But number two, beyond that, like at some point you're going to have a production designer reading this. You're going to have a, a wardrobe person reading this, costume person reading this, excuse me, costume designer. You're going to have uh, your DP reading this. You're going to have, uh, 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 you know, your whole crew is going to read this script, right? And the director has got to be, conveying his vision and obviously they're going to talk, you know, Damien's going to spend a ton of time with Linus and a ton of time with Nathan, you know, Crowley who's our production designer, you know, Linus, our our, our and our DP, you know, working out the details of this. But the script provides a basic blueprint for all of them to say, "Oh, okay, this is this is, you know, for, you know, th- this is what's happening here. This is what the focus is on the scene. This is this is where we're all. This is what generally, we're we're shooting for so that we roughly know, you know, okay, so Nathan can figure out, oh, okay, I just need the interior of the X-15. The exterior is not really all that important until this moment when we're on the, you know. And so, when am I going to see the interior when he's getting out of the craft? That's where the interior yeah. is important, right? A- and the exterior is not important for when I'm up in the air, and so I don't need to see, you know, the flaps on the wings or anything. You know, like, so There, there's there's all sorts of and again, Damien goes over this all in detail, but at least you know we've got it. We've got a game plan here, mm. right? Um, for the actors, I don't know. I mean, that's where the blueprint terminology really comes into play. Because to me, I feel like that you know, so much of what's magic, right, in movies is what happens on the day, right? And oftentimes, that's not exactly what's on the page, right? So. You know, look, as a writer, you slave over the dialogue. You hope they're, you know, you hope they're going to say something in the ballpark, right? (laughs) But oftentimes they don't, and oftentimes they come up with stuff which is even better, right? Because they're in the moment, and they're living in the moment and feeling in the moment. And oftentimes, by the way, you know, so some of my favorite stuff in the movie is stuff that was improvised, right? Stuff where, you know, Damien had two weeks of rehearsal with with the family, Mm -hmm. right, just to sort of play it being a family. And, you know, sneaky Damien, he shot it. So it actually was two <laughs> extra weeks shooting. But don't tell the studio. <laughs> they still think it was just two weeks of rehearsal, right? But, but no, but he had that time just to get these, these folks to know each other, right? And to start to act as a family. And so, you know, they improvise some amazing stuff. And some of that is, you know, there's, there's, a, there's this wonderful sequence, which is um, right after Neil finds out he's been cleared of the, of the, you know, the Gemini 8, it wasn't his fault, which it wasn't. You know, and, and he goes home and plays with the kids, right? And, you know, tries to stick Rick in the freezer and, you know, they tell Mark to stand in a corner, you know, and, and uh, she's, not, she's not laughing, she's crying, you know, because Janet can't stop from laughing. All that's improvised, right? It's one of my favorite sequences in the movie. And why is it there? Well, because we had written a scene that takes place at the pool that was fun and light and supposed to be that breath of relief before Ed dies. And, you know, it didn't work shot okay it just didn't quite didn't quite have that thing and so damien reached in and he grabbed a bunch of stuff that he to get that same sentiment and so what i love about that is the blueprint for what we're going for is in that scene like the spirit of what i wrote on the page is the same as the spirit of what he put together for the movie it just didn't quite you know turn out that way and so like you know there's something to me beautiful and, and Damien speaks even more eloquently about this than I do, but there's something beautiful about when you diverge from the blueprint and you come up with something even more magical, mm. right? And, 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 and it makes the film come alive.
1: Now, your blueprint needs some humor uh, as part of the movie. So we have the vomit comet scene, which is actually uh, the the axis early in the film, the multi axis, multi yeah, axis of yeah, the yeah, comic. Yeah, yeah. uh, you know, they go through hell and they have to read two hundred and four pages of, of yeah, rocket yeah. science with vomit stains. How did you did you realize at this point the script needs some kind of break of the tension, or you, that's something actually the astronauts would experience? And we thought it was kind of a funny moment.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny because like there are um, it's a it's a funny thing with the with the script. You know. My first draft had a lot of, when I got to the astronauts, had a lot of banter. Mm. Because, you know, that's what we're used to. And that's, you know, and and these guys, I think, did have a little bit of that. And Damien was very, uh, I mean, we very much wanted to make a film that was very different from all the other space films you've seen and different from that right stuff. Even Apollo 13 has some of this, like, happy, fun banter. And so we really pushed against that, Right. And, and push for moments of humor that were much more organic, right? Uh, and, and much more just sort of like, wow, this is, this is how brutal it is. It's kind of funny, right? Um, and, you know, I mean, one of my favorite lines, uh, you know, and it's funny, it's, it's a silly favorite line to have written, right? Because it's not a specifically clever line. It's not, you know, it's, I, I mean, I would never pretend to be a Sorkin, but it's not even remotely in the ballpark. It's just simply when, Elliot's talking about you know this ice bath you know and this is even earlier this is when when they're uh, you know they they've just they're, they're, Neil's about to be interviewed and he sits down next to Elliot and it's the first moment they meet and Elliot played wonderfully by Patrick Fugit is talking about this ice bath and you know how cold you know it was and but you know he, he thinks they're more after the the psychological than the than the than the physical response and Neil just says. Gently, well, you know, I made it pretty clear. I thought it was cold, right? <laughs> and 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 it's it's such a like to me. It's it's and it's like it took me like fifty cuts at that line <laughs> to get that line to place where so it's like, oh yeah, that's what that's how Neil would have said it. That's what it would have been. And it's delicate. And and you know, and in I don't know if I've got a laugh in here tonight, but you know, it 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 has tended to get a laugh because you need a break, you need a mm. moment, right? And it's just this like. Oh, he's still alive, right? He's not, you know, he's lost his daughter, but he's still alive, right? Right. And then, like, you know, we have, we're going, Gemini needed to be, in general, like, we're starting to breathe into life, right? You know, we've been dead, and we're starting to breathe into life, and we're going to dance, right? And we're going to sit around the table, and we're going to, I mean, to me, the real moment, for me that you're talking about and look i love the multi-axis stuff and i think that that plays you know, that generally gets some good laughs but to me the real moment w- is the musical theater moment when they're all yeah. sitting and having dinner and they talk about EdgeLock. and what what's amazing what i love about that is um so i'd written that scene that dinner scene and we always had this idea of like again like let's have life and let's have mundane just you know three couples sitting around a table and i Mistakenly, had written a scene with a lot of banter about Valentina Tereshkova, who was the first Russian cosmonaut. Mm -hmm. And the wives all saying, Well, why aren't they sending women to space? They're doing it in Russia. She was the first woman in space, period. But she was the first uh, Russian, sorry, first female cosmonaut and first female in space. And, And having the wives sort of poking at the men about that. And I wrote the scene, I was really proud of it. I was like, oh, this is using the history, and it's funny, and it's light. And Damien had loved it. And then he gave it, you know, because we tend to, again, give scripts out not only to historians, but also to readers. And and so Damien had given the script to somebody who said, like, that feels feels modern. It doesn't feel like the women at the time would have been talking about that in that way. And Damien gave me the note, and I was like, "Yeah, but it's so good. I, like, I literally like ignored the note on three because Damien and I did you know you, you see we, we did like probably sixty drafts, right there are sixteen drafts that we turned into producers over the course of like two years, but it's really we did three or four for ourselves for each of those single drafts, so it's like sixty drafts, so like for three or four drafts, I ignored the note and just kept hoping that Damien would forget it right <laughs> and it would go away and and then at some point, Ryan you know, because Ryan started reading and giving notes, and Ryan said, hey, you know, I read this thing about Neil being into musical theater, and he wrote this thing, Land of Edgelock, and why isn't that in the script? <laughs> and I said, that's a good question, because <laughs> it's such a human moment for Neil, and it's so different from the Neil Armstrong we think we know, and, um, and, uh, and so, and I was like, where would it go, where would it go? And I was like, oh, I guess I could take that bad Valentina Tereshkova stuff out, and plug it, and it wrote in like 10 minutes, Super fast, right? And what I love is that always gets a laugh. Like, because that moment of, like, this guy wrote musical theater and, like, the guy's looking at him like he's from the moon, you know? Like, it's it just, it always works. And it's, it's because it's organic and natural. And to me, that's the other great thing about filmmaking is it's really collaboration. It's really about, you know, it's hard making a, making, make, it's hard making a bad movie. It's hard make, certain, certainly hard making a good movie. Like, you know, you need all the bright minds you have, and certainly when you're trying to get under the skin of this guy.
1: Now, speaking of bright minds, uh, Janet Claire Foy. I mean, she, she is a very, uh, you know, she's, she's holding back a lot, but when she explodes, she explodes to NASA about turning on the things. And, of course, the dramatic scene with Neil, you're going to talk to the kids. Yeah, yeah. How did you approach her character, you know, being true to Janet, working with Claire Foy, you know, to get to kind of find the voice of that character?
0: well we you know we got to sit with you know we didn't immediately get to sit with Janet, but we got to sit with uh we got to sit with the boys, Mark and Rick quite a bit, and then eventually we got to Janet and so we got a real sense of her and and those scenes you know so that's all right in Jim's book, the fact that she went to Mission Control, you know, and she had it out with Deke like a week or two later, but, you know, that is also, you know, described in detail in Jim's book, and so it was just, it was just, and we embellish a little bit in the language, but like those scenes, you know, it just was such a great way to show what she's dealing with, right, Uh, and then the scene later where she pushes Neil to talk to the boys, that's also, you know, from Jim's interviews for Janet, which I don't think were in the book, but like specifically, you know, uh, she said to Jim, Janet actually, her father died when she was 15. He had a heart attack and it was quite sudden and, you know, never got to say goodbye to him. And, and at some point I had a line about that in there, but it was just way too on the nose. But, but that she, she definitely was insistent with Neil and, and, can you imagine? I mean, the only other time okay. he's been in space, he almost died. She got this, you know, and that was an eight-hour mission that was a lot less
1: challenging. And two of than her best one. friends died. And yeah. right, and
0: exactly right, and and you know, and and you know, she's super close with Pat. Like, and saw what happened to Pat. Like, she must imagine what she must have been going through. You know, leading up to this great thing, which is terrifying. Right. So you know, it, it, it wasn't hard to, you know, we had the kernel of. I made him talk to the boys. It wasn't hard to imagine that, especially given Neil's taciturn, emotionally withdrawn manner. It wasn't hard to imagine that escalating into a fight. Now, my best story about that is we, bought, uh, we brought Mark and Rick, uh, and I apologize, I'm babbling a little. I, I got, I, got, I, I, I had, I, I pounded a Diet Coke before I came in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, so uh, we, we had uh, Mark and Rick come in. We had all these guys, Mark and Rick, Mike Collins, uh, Frank Hughes, uh, the trainer, uh, 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 Joe Angle. We had them all come in four weeks before Picture Lock to give us you know, one last round you know, just on what they were going to see on screen. And I was super nervous for Mark and Rick, especially because I had sent them the conform script. And Rick had very few notes because he had read the script many times. But he did say, you know, my mom drops the f bomb. Right no. in that scene with Dad, you know, where she's pushing, you know, him to talk to us, and I don't think she would have done that. So, like, I get this email from him right before he's about to watch the movie, and I'm like, oh my god! So, he's, <laughs> they're going to make us take that out, and it's such a beautiful performance, and oh, it's going to be, and, and as it is, I'm already terrified they're going to hate the movie, and so I, I'm, you know, and, and, and so I'm nervous enough when they see the movie the first time, and, and, and that went pretty well. Um, but then we did this thing where not only would we have them watch the movie, we would actually then sit with them with the movie on PIX, which is our little com- our program so we can watch it on a computer screen. And I'd stop it anytime they had an issue because that was the only way to actually effectively okay. get their notes, right? So they, so they actually, they watched it once and they watched it a second time and then I sat with them and, you know, took down all of it. We got like 10 pages of notes, you know, and we managed to get to about 70 to 80% of them. But, um, but so we get to that scene and I'm like, oh, God, here we go, right? And I play out the scene, and you know, and 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 you know, give me a number. I can't give you, you know, I I can't give you a number around a number, you know, blah, blah blah. And so, and we get to the end of the scene, and I pause the scene, and I look up at Rick and Mark, and I'm like waiting for them to lower the boom. And uh, and Mark just says, "How can we argue with that?" Oh. And to me, that's just that's Claire Foy, right? And and, mm-hmm. and the fact that I think she and she had listened to Janet's tapes over and over again. The tapes of us sitting with Janet, she didn't actually get a chance to meet with Janet. I think she didn't quite want to because she didn't want to feel hemmed in by meeting the actual person. But she listened to the tapes of us talking to Janet over and over, which is how she got the accent so perfect. Uh And I think she had just so embodied Janet that they were just, you know, that it actually felt real to them in that moment.
1: And, And so, yeah. Now, of course, the money scene is landing on the moon. Neil wasn't really interested walking on the moon or be the fame. He just wanted to fly there. Uh, So, what were the decisions of how to portray the whole moon sequence? Yeah, what to leave out, what to put in to stay true to his character, too.
0: Yeah, you know, um, it's funny because it is it is true. Like it's 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 an amazing thing that uh, that Neil's um, Neil would always talk about the landing. Because that yeah. was the hard part. The walking, cause... like that, you know, people have been, you know, in some ways, imagine like an EVA in the middle of, you know, when you're in space, right, when you're just floating is in some ways a lot harder than, you know, sure. walking in one-sixth gravity, which is a lot more normal than, you know, and, and in fact, they had struggled a lot with those EVAs early on in Gemini. Um, but, uh, sorry, extra vehicle, it's, it's spacewalks. Um, uh, space geek here. Um, sorry. Um, but uh, But, you know, to us, the big choice was to make the moon an emotional journey, yeah. as opposed to once you land, everything from that point on is really about trying to be in Neil's head and experience what he's experiencing emotionally, as opposed to it being a, um, you know, it being a. Uh, 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 you know, about they did this, and then they did this, mm. and then they did this. And in fact, the, the, the one moment we really, we really do go deep on is the moment nobody really knows anything about, which is, you know, that when he wanders off to Little West Crater, that was in a totally unscripted moment. And it was the one moment on the moon that was unscripted. Everything else was in the mission plan for both of them, except for that moment where he wanders off to Little West Crater. And so, you know, people have long, in, in the space community, have long talked about, like, well, what did he do? What was he doing there? Why did, he, you know... and. You know, Neil always said, Well, I just I saw some interesting rocks as we were coming, you know, because they were trained. They, they got a lot of geological training. He's like, I saw some interesting rocks and I thought it'd be interesting to go take a look. But we thought, well, What if there was a more emotional reason to go over there? Um, and so that was the, and so we said, What if we can spend some real time with him and just try to get into what's in his brain at that moment?
1: Yeah, I mean, you, know, you and I talked backstage. Neil's sister's June was asked by the biographer, did uh, Neil bring anything of Karen to the moon? Because Buzz Aldrin, Neil talked about it. She cried and said, I, oh, I dearly hope so. So is that, was that wishful thinking for you that he brought the bracelet, or is it just kind of something?
0: I, I mean, I, I would say, uh, you know, for for one, um, you, know, uh, you know, it was, I read it in Jim's book. It's Jim's conjecture uh, based on that and based on the fact that you know, Neil claimed at that point to have lost the manifest to his personal property kit or personal preference kit, um, which he, you know, just seemed very un like. And it actually has since been found and it's under seal at Purdue until 2020. So who knows? Uh, but, uh, you know, so, you know, Jim's conjecture is what excited me um, that, oh, he believes this might have been the case and june believes it might have been the case so that feels like okay that's fair game uh and just for me you know uh uh you know my my father passed away a couple of years before uh, uh this movie i started working on this movie and and my you know it was you know one of the worst things i'd ever gone through and and my experience with grief was such that you know it felt like you know, would he still feel that intense grief all those years later? Yes. And would he maybe want to, you know, take some memento? Like, it just felt like, you know, this is a guy who buries grief. I'm sure if he did, he would never have told anyone about it. Um, but yet, it felt like uh, I buy it, that, you know, he, he, uh, he might have done that. Yeah. So.
1: So we talk a little reaction to the film before you open up the questions. Um, so I'm curious, and I think the audience is curious, and my students were curious. uh how did Buzz Aldrin feel about the portrayal <laughs> in the movie? Uh I wasn't allowed to say what I thought he the character was because of profanity, so they banned my students banned me. But how did Buzz feel about his portrayal' Because he was actually a great contrast you know I talked about between Neil character wise but you know
0: yeah, so uh so my my so Robert Perlman is this incredible uh, space aficionado. Runs a site, uh, CollectSpace.com, and and Robert was a huge help to us. Also, a guy who read scripts and 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 uh, and came in and watched the movie before it was done and gave us notes. And Robert uh, is close with Buzz, uh, and I talked to Buzz a bunch of points along the way, and he was actually quite helpful at moments. You know, because he knows some. He, his mind is like a steel trap with with respect to any specifics. So I could actually call him and ask him questions, and he would answer, um, a, 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 you know, very, with incredible alacrity. And, um, and so I, uh, I called Robert, uh, knowing he's close with Buzz, the night before we showed the movie to Buzz, because I was nervous. Uh, and I said, Robert, I'm very nervous for showing the movie to Buzz. Uh, is you know what's going to happen? <laughs> you know, like uh, Buzz tweets a lot. What what kind of Twitter? What, 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 what are we going to get on Twitter tomorrow? And, and 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 he said, Oh, there have been much worse portrayals of Buzz. This is nothing. Uh, which you know, actually, if you look, is 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 true. He's apparently a pretty. Uh, there are any number of other uh, uh, fictional portrayals of Buzz that are that are pretty rugged. Uh, and I think what Robert was really pointing to is, you know, in, in this portrayal of Buzz, you know, we... I, I took a very... I had a very uh, specific approach, which is that, you know, Buzz was known for having no filter. All the astronauts, you know, I mean, he's known for a guy who just can't stop talking and, and doesn't have any filter. And so... The the choice we made was he's a truth teller, right? So everything he says is hundred percent true. Right? You know, ask any astronaut off the record what happened, you know, with with you know Elliott C. and Charlie Bassett and they'll say, Oh, you know, Elliot killed my buddy Charlie. Like that's what they'll say. And in fact, the ruling was that it was pilot error, right, that led to that mm-hmm. crash. So Buzz is telling the truth, you know. At, you know, there's a whole great book on Apollo Eight on how it was. You know, it was lunacy to send that that you know rocket to the moon, right? There were just too many issues. Uh, it was a really ballsy move, uh, and, and so you know what he says is all true. It's just the wrong time to say it, which is very much in keeping with who Buzz was, from what we had learned from talking to lots of people. So Buzz comes in. And, uh, and, in fact, the first scene where he's talking about, you know, that Elliot C. was clearly, you know, clearly the arrow was in the approach. Buzz turns to his buddy who's there and looks up and says, yeah, well, zero was in the approach. And Lily starts talking through how Elliot had screwed up, right?
1: <laughs> and then the best
0: is, so they get to the next scene where Buzz is talking about the lunar lottery and, and Corey, you know, says, you know, well, I'm just saying what you're all thinking. And Buzz looks up on the screen and says, that's me! <laughs> so... Uh, so, yeah, so, uh, now, and I will say what was just incredible and, and just a priceless moment was after, uh, you know, Buzz, you know, sort of can get off on tangents these days. And sometimes they're just incredible and literally talked us through, uh, the landing, um, which mm-hmm. he had talked me through a little bit. That's, that's my other great Buzz story. So I called him, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll babble just for a Ooh. second here. Uh, I apologize. I know it's late, but, uh, I called Buzz um, right as we were in the Lem and we were shooting the scene. And we had a question about one of the buttons on the Lem, and like nobody could have it. Nobody had an answer, and Robert Perlman couldn't quite remember. And he's like, "Call Buzz." And I was like, "Oh, I'll give it a shot." And I called Buzz. And he's like, "Yeah, we didn't have that button. It wasn't, you know." And Lily knew exactly what it was. It was amazing, right? You know, this is just the recall um, for someone who can go on tangents. And then I had him on the phone, and I said, "So, so tell me." because I had never asked him, and I was like, well, I'm now talking about the limb. I might as well ask him. So tell me, like, you're going down, and you know, right, that suddenly you can't land in this patch of area, and so he's got to switch to manual and get over West Crater, and, and you're going to be low on fuel, and you, you're watching the gauges, and yet in the transcript, you don't, say it, you don't say much of anything at all, right? You're just... And I, and I, said, I said, were you nervous? He's like, well... He's like, test pilots don't get nervous. We get alert, right? <laughs> and I said, okay, okay. So you're more alert. I said, but didn't you want to say something to your you know, to your commander? Didn't you want to say to Neil, like, watch your fuel? Like, you know, but you didn't, he's like, well, you don't want to rattle. You never want to say anything. Like, you want to let him do his job. He's like, but I gave him a little body English, <laughs> which to me was like the greatest line in the world. Uh, and so... Uh, so I, I like to think that Corey gave some...
1: And we added a couple little lines, but it's mostly body body English, so... We've got to come to the end of our show, uh, but we do ask our same question, our last question. Um, so it's a screenwriting question. So growing up, what screenplay or movie that maybe inspired you to be a writer or something that our students should examine? Like, this is something you should study as a good example of screenwriting. Uh,
0: you know, I would say... Uh, uh, you know, it's funny. Um, it's funny when I was a kid, I wasn't like that. wasn't You know, I mean, I, there was one moment when when my parents went and saw the Fisher King and came home and said, "You could have written that." And I, I wasn't a screenwriter. I don't know why they said that. Uh, it's a great, great movie. I you know, um, you know, it's funny for me. You know, uh, I mean, when I started really getting, I mean. I, I think anything by Steve Zalian is really extraordinary. The, the the you read Schindler's List. Um, you know, uh I've read parts of Quiz Show. Uh I think that's an extraordinary screenplay. Um, you know, uh for me as a kid, I mean, you know, glory in the natural. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and and now now as an adult it would probably be like Godfather in the apartment. I don't know, but you know, <laughs> But um, but as a kid, Glory and the Natural, and Glory, I, I recall getting huge props for the accuracy uh, in, in a similar way, and and that's one I think about all the time because I don't know anything about that African American regiment other than what I learned watching Glory, right? And so like, you know, what was, you know, what was what was their responsibility? Uh, what was it was I think it was Ed Zwick. What was Ed directed? Yeah, right. It's, what's his responsibility and the responsibility of that screenwriter? You know. Uh, it's, it's horrible, right? I don't know the name of the screenwriter. It was one of my favorite movies as a kid, you know. Uh, so, uh, but, uh, but what's the responsibility? And, you know, well, that's what I know of, you know, of that regiment, right?
1: So, like, you know, and so hopefully they got a fair amount of it right. Well, we're going to end on a Neil Armstrong quote saying, there's a very real danger that our own generation may, be, may too soon forget the progress as a price which society must be willing to pay. I want to thank you Ray, for such a beautiful script and remind us that the astronauts were heroes. Thank you guys for coming out tonight. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and, of course, uh, the families were heroes, too. And uh, thanks for coming back to the Pollock and visiting with us. Uh, my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast
0: by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.